Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where I didn't even tell you this part, Lauren, but uh, it's my birthday weekend. Oh, happy birthday! (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thanks so much. I'm Karen Peterson, joined, as always, by Lauren Humphreys-Brooks. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Good. My I'm birthday's tired. actually tomorrow, so. Awesome. Do you yeah. have any? You have any good plans? Um. So today I'm going golfing with some friends, and then we're gonna go out to dinner, and then tomorrow the Screen Actors Guild is having a party. So. Oh, awesome! Wow. <laughs> it's the SAG Awards. The, so the entire Screen Actors Guild <laughs> is celebrating you. That's amazing. Yes, exactly. Amazing. You have yeah. such pull in in Hollywood. <laughs> Well, originally, when they were doing scheduling a couple of years ago, the Oscars were supposed to be tonight, which does fall on my birthday every once in a while. And that's always fun, because then I can have, like, a birthday party and make it Oscar-themed. So, it's less fun now, because I have to, like, pay attention and work during the Oscars, Uh but still fun, though. Anyway. Yeah. So, and then um, Monday is the Hollywood Critics Association Awards, so I'm looking forward to that. I will be presenting um, Best Cinematography, so. Ooh, cool. Yeah, I'm pretty excited. So, what's uh, what's happening with you? Uh, well, I'm finally back in New York City, which is nice. It's good to be back. <laughs> Uh, I hit, I hit, uh, um, I hit the George Washington Bridge, and I was like, "Oh, traffic!" And I was like, "Oh, New York!" Like we're just gonna, <laughs> we're gonna try to get there really fast, but not move at all at the same time, and it's marvelous. And if you, if you don't close that like five foot gap between yourself and the next car, well, you're gonna get honked at. <laughs> yep, it's it's that way in LA too, like on the four hundred five freeway. So fun. That's the traffic report from Citizen Dave. <laughs> well, the weather report is that it is warmer here than it was in upstate New York, which I am very grateful for. So that's it. How much warmer? Um, it's it's about 10 degrees warmer here. Oh, okay. Nice. So, that yeah, is it, significantly different. So Yeah, that's the usual difference. Every once in a while, we get kind of a weird weather front, but... Um, yeah, it's it's if it's twenty five upstate, it's going to be thirty five or forty here. Yeah, fun. Well, it was like fifty degrees last Monday, and it's going to be like eighty degrees this Monday. <laughs> so, and then it's going to go back into the sixties by the end of the week. No wonder we're I... all getting like colds and stuff. <laughs> but the climate's not changing or anything. No. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, we have some fun stuff to talk about. I think we should start with the bad stuff and then go into the things that we like to talk about. So what? Which bad stuff? 
Uh, <laughs> that's a good question. Well, I think, you know, we used to always do this at the top of the show, and I think we should still. Um, this Week in Garbage People oh God. is unfortunately back. Why don't you uh, tell the people which garbage person we're talking about? Well, this is an old school garbage person. And honestly, this one, I, this one isn't surprising to me. And, and he's been kind of a, a name in garbage people for a while. Mm -hmm. but, um, but it's still disturbing. And, it, and it's disturbing, but at the same time, I think that it's, there's a catharsis going on as well. Um, so Jerry Lewis, in a, in a recent article in Vanity Fair, um, the... And this was initially based by uh, based on um, women who were interviewed by the directors of Alan V. Farrow, who were kind of doing investigations into sexual harassment in sort of older Hollywood. And what they came across, and there are a number of, of people who are still alive from that era, obviously. Uh, and, and what they came across was a number of women who had accusations against Jerry Lewis. Um, for all kinds of things. And, you know, like I said, Lewis was notorious for not being nice to women. Um, he's been notorious, he was notorious for that all the way through his, his life, basically, his life and his career. Um, but some of the shit that went down, and I'm not going to quote everything, but um, some of the things that his, his female co-stars talked about, about him harassing them, groping them, fondling them, and not just not just quotation marks doing that but at like when they refused him also kind of cutting them out basically um and one of karen sharp who did the disorderly orderly with him in 1964 talks about how uh how after she rejected him after she told him no he basically told everyone on set not to speak to her and he would not interact with her except in the scenes where where they were together um so she was like so it, it was like this campaign of psychological abuse in addition to the fact that he that he sexually harassed her um and this seems to have been something that he he did throughout and that paramount in particular protected him from because he was such a big name and he was such a major star at that point and it's only now that a number of these women are actually feeling comfortable to talk so you're talking about women who are now in their 70s 80s 90s right mm -hmm. and they're talking about their experiences with this beloved comedian you know um it's just i i really you know encourage people to go read the vanity fair article because it's very good breakdown but i think it it also addresses the fact that this is not you know the me too movement and all that this is not something that's new in hollywood particularly the the concept of the casting catch the the article even talks about you know articles that were written by people like Marilyn Monroe about men that were harassing them. Mm -hmm. And they don't name names because it was dangerous to basically, you could destroy your career. But that's why a lot of women didn't come forward. Um, but this was something that is, this is something that has been going on for such a long time. And it, it's, it was treated as business as usual, but it's, it destroyed women's careers. Yeah, I, I think the thing, and obviously I haven't finished reading the article yet, but um, I think the thing that's really struck struck me as I'm going through it is the protection of men in, and this is something that we've talked about for, I mean, literally since the first week of this show, um, these types of things started to come out and going on five years now. 
And, um, and in every facet of the film industry, from film critics groups to all the way up to, you know, major studio executives and Harvey Weinstein and all that. And I think the thing, the common thread that always strikes me on these stories is how much people will circle, you know, circle up, gather up and protect these men. And it's like, why, why did Jerry Lewis have that kind of power? You know, how did Harvey Weinstein get the amount of power that he had or any of these other guys? It's like, why, you know, why are people so willing to just like cater to them to this, to this point where other people, and in this case, it's focusing on the women that he abused, but you've got to know that there were also, you know, like you know, men be getting, you know, verbally assaulted and stuff like that too. There ha- has to have happened. That's a, it's a pattern of, of abuse with these people. And so it's like, what? Sure. They make money. Okay. That's fine. But really how valuable can they actually be that they're worth treating everyone else around them? Like nothing. I mean, I, yeah, I think it comes down to money. A lot of the time um, it comes out to money and it comes down to power. And you're talking about a period in, in Lewis's career, especially when he was a big star, you know, this, this whole idea of like Paramount basically putting tons of money into him. And most, most of these women that you're talking about were, weren't, you know, people like Karen Sharp and a, a Jill St. John, um, Lainey Kazan, these were not such big stars that they were unassailable. But we've even seen in um, with the Harvey Weinstein thing is that he went after women that were big stars. And there was still that kind of culture of complicity and um, and and of simply women. One of the ways that men do this, right, is because women are ashamed. They're embarrassed, literally. And that's what actually a number of the women who talk about Jerry Lewis are saying exactly that, that they were embarrassed by what happened. They were shocked and kind of horrified. And like, you know, Lady Kazan talks about having to go into therapy, right? And yeah. and and like you say, it wasn't just, it's not just sexual harassment, quotation marks around just, right? It's also the psychological abuse, this verbal abuse, this um being you know him actively making trying to make these women feel bad about themselves in other ways uh and enjoying that obviously and so yeah i'm sure cer- i am certain that he he went after some men and you know and probably there were some men who cut him out of their lives uh probably there were some men who just kind of ignored it and put up with it and whatever lewis was notorious for being a son of a bitch um and so it's it's hardly surprising that we're now getting information that he he was also abusive, um, yeah. sexually abusive. Yeah, it's one of those things where I feel like I always knew it, <laughs> you know, without ever consciously knowing, and obviously, and I didn't know details or anything like that. But when I saw the the um, the tweets the other day coming through i was just like didn't didn't we already know this haven't we talked about this before and then i saw you had linked the article and i was like oh 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 no we did not know all this so i don't know it's just such an interesting thing but you know reading through it and reading some of the stuff that 
that he did, it's just, it comes back to, again, you know, and obviously this is much, uh, much less the point, but it's always striking to me how um, men that complain about or criticize the way women look, <laughs> look like Jerry Lewis. I just, I, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, I. I the the other the other day I I said I said about about some actor I was just like well he's an asshole but also he looks like a thumb yeah like, it's exactly that like and and it is you know and we were talking about this before we started recording that it is very much um, I think a, a it's a it's a lack of self esteem honestly I think that people like Jerry Lewis they get their kicks out of hurting other human beings mm-hmm. um, but they're doing it they want to make them themselves feel better about themselves right and so and you know i think that there's also i don't know jerry lewis's biography at all but i i think that particularly people like weinstein and others and you actually because they use this as an excuse as well just like well when i was young girls didn't weren't interested in me and now girls are it's just like so you think that the that you know you were entitled to women's interest in you and you weren't given that when you were you know 18 years old but now that you have power you are taking it basically right and and essentially a lot of the time it it is this this deeply internalized misogyny where they are angry that women have not paid attention to them and so they take out that aggression on all women right so one girl uh ignores you in high school it's just like well i'm going to hurt every woman i can Mm -hmm. Um, and you see that again and again so it's it's not surprising when it's someone like jerry lewis or harvey weinstein uh because probably they have been badly treated in their lives and instead of you know being healthy about that they start directing it at uh at any woman who kind of comes within their reach because they get a little bit of power yeah yeah that's true and and this is not to say that attractive men are not abusive assholes because they obviously are too, but um, the the types of abuse tend to be different. <laughs> that's that's just something <laughs> that I've observed. You know, is like the the attack on women's looks and on women's bodies mm-hmm. is. I mean, first of all, it's not terribly unusual. Right. Um, you know, it's just like why I mean, we've I think we've all heard it at some point. You don't look right, right? You're not you're too fat, you're too thin, you're too uh tall, you're too short, all of those things. And we get that sort of attitude throughout media all the time. So it's hardly surprising that men certain men would take would grasp a hold of that and men like, well, it's okay to to, you know, mock women for being X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, but yeah, so Jerry Lewis is a garbage person, and we know this, and now we know a lot more details about why and how. And well, and I, I think that we should remember in a broader sense that this is probably true of a lot of major stars in that period yeah um and that's one of the things that's really unfortunate about this you get you you know you get stories like this but uh you know not that long ago last year rita moreno talked about the abuse that she suffered when she was in hollywood Mm -hmm. um when she was a young woman kind of trying to make it and and so you know marilyn monroe undoubtedly was harassed and abused by men um probably by some very well-known men and it was just this acceptable thing. And as, as the article points out, 
the casting couch up until the the re more recent me too movement the casting couch had just been this sort of oh ha ha joke right it was like this it, there was this attitude that oh there was this exchange going on that the women were going to bed with these powerful men because they wanted to and because it was going to advance their careers and it's just like that's that's literal harassment that's rape right that's coercion right um and a lot of these women no they didn't they didn't want to do that right but they kind of did it because they understood that if they didn't they were not going to have careers anymore yeah one thing I um, I thought was interesting, because there's been a lot of, of um, discussion over the Me Too movement, whether it's doing any of the things that it set out to do, you know, how much is being accomplished. And um, one thing I, I thought was interesting and I liked that Hope Holiday said was, um, so the article, this is toward the end, it says, Holiday sees real progress thanks to the Me Too movement as well. Quote, these guys have no choice. It'll be the end of their careers if they keep up this nonsense. Now women feel they have a place. And if we keep fighting and open our mouths and let them have what they deserve, then we've got a chance. We won't be treated like secondhand nothings. And I guess the reason that that struck me was because when we talk about how things need to change, um, you know, like we were talking about this recently with, um, before we get into this week, the crap the Academy pulled, um, some of the, the, good things that are coming about, you know, with more women getting nominated for stuff, with more international films getting nominated for stuff, and how these changes happen, and we have to recognize the incremental changes. Um, and I think that's what's happened with me, too. It's been five years. Why haven't they completely upended the entire industry yet? And it's like, well, when you see the perspective of someone like Hope Holiday, who's going, well, wow, I see a big difference from, you know, years ago. And so it's it's good to have that reminder, I guess, that things are changing and that these these stories, when women speak up now, there's a lot more protection. People are ready to believe them and not just believe them but actually do something about it. And of course that's still not perfect and there's still a long way to go there too, but it's such a different world than it was in the sixties and seventies and even in the early two thousands. Yeah. It, it's become much more of a national conversation. I think that women are also recognizing more and more that this is not okay. Right. Right. That this is not just something, well, I've just got to put up with it because that's the nature of the world. Right. And, and I do think that that's important as well. That's important, not just for women in Hollywood, but it's important for women everywhere. Mm -hmm. Because there are a lot of things that we've put up with in our lives. I've certainly put up with it. Um, that you look back on, you're like, that's not okay. That's not something that was okay to put up with, right? And there are a lot of reasons why you do. But at, I mean, I know that the Me Too movement has radicalized me a lot more. Um, it's made me a lot more feminist and a lot less willing to kind of accept, just accept male bullshit. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's important as well, that it isn't just, it's, it's a recognition for women too, right? That this world that we've been existing in is incredibly misogynist, is incredibly sexist, and it doesn't have to be. We right. can actually fight back against that and there will, like, there will be support. Um, and having all of this public does mean that more people can come forward with support, more people can come forward with their own stories, and more women are being told this kind of behavior is not something you should have to accept. 
Exactly. Yeah. And just like with anything that is in the middle of a change, we don't look at, at where we're at now and go, wow, see, it's so much better than it was 20, 40 years ago. We're done. We need to use that as the kind of the marker of like, okay, this is where we've gotten to and we still have work to do. Um, but yeah, we have to celebrate those benchmarks and, and the progress as we see it. So Yeah. Yeah. So we will have a link to the article in the show notes so you can read it for yourselves if you have not. Um, as I just mentioned, the, we will talk a little bit about how the Oscars decided to be stupid again. <laughs> oh my goodness. There's no way to transition from Jerry Lewis to not giving people their time in the spotlight, so... Uh, how Hollywood is dumb. <laughs> Hollywood is <laughs> dumb. <laughs> so true. Oh my goodness. So, uh, anybody who is in film Twitter or, or entrenched in the awards culture probably already knows, but for those of you who may not, um, this week the Academy president, David Rubin, who's from the casting branch, um, announced that in an increased effort to try to improve engagement and also shorten the show, uh, they are moving eight, eight of the awards to a non-televised pre-show an hour before the televised thing that we're going to get to watch. Eight. <laughs> I just, my mind is blown because... In 2019, they announced they were going to do this. This is the year Parasite won, by the way. Um, they announced they were going to do this, and everyone just said, uh, no, no, fuck that. And that time it was going to be four. The The idea was that they would pick four categories, always below the line, because, of course, they're not going to do that with, like, best actor or whatever. Um, hey, I want to see him do it with best picture. Just, just <laughs> we're just going to announce best picture off air. Well, last year we saw what happened when they didn't put it last, and that <laughs> didn't go well. So, oh, that's my. right. Oh yeah. my god, I completely forgot about that. Yeah, oh, that was I will bizarre. never forget that. That was, that was the bizarre. worst. Yeah. Well, it was so funny because it was one of those things where we had talked all oh, for years, like on a word circuit and stuff, of like. What if they didn't put Best Picture last? What if they ended with something else? And we were like, that's dumb. They would never do that. And then Steven Soderbergh, experimental filmmaker that he is. You don't have an experimental filmmaker host the Oscars. <laughs> plan the Oscars because you're going to get stuff like ending on a really sour note. Anyway. Um, yeah, so... There is so much happening with this decision, but basically the plan before they got quashed was they were going to rotate four categories to not show during the ceremony that they were going to do during commercial breaks. And so their rationale this time is that, well, at least it's not during the commercial breaks, but it's eight categories. Um, I And I'm trying to pull up the list right now really quick of which categories they were. It's sound. I know that. Um, original score, all three of the short film categories, um, and then I want to say makeup and hairstyling. Uh, I'm looking, sorry. 
I was not prepared. Film editing. Film editing as well. Editing, yes. Original score, makeup and hairstyling, documentary short, film editing, production design, animated short, live action, live action short, and sound. Yes. Um, Yeah, it's... All the unimportant parts of filming. Well, it's... That's (laughs) the thing, isn't it? Right? Like, first of all, you're like, okay, well, some of... Particularly with the short films, that's the major exposure that they're going to get is being nominated for Oscars, right? And Mm -hmm. winning Oscars. And that can be really important for filmmakers. That can be important for, you know, major non-Hollywood kind of... um, forces and so just like oh that's not that important right you don't get you don't get to to do this in front of everybody we're just going to ignore you basically and then you get to things like sound and film editing and production design just like oh so all of the things that aren't recognizably flashy right but are i mean i at this point i'm kind of like you know what i want all of those all of the um the guilds to to just be like okay well we're just gonna go on strike then you don't get editing or production design or sound or music yeah uh and and you let us know how that works for you right like and i i would absolutely love to see that because it's it's ridiculous it's so disrespectful um it's not i'm sorry it is not gonna make the telecast any better it is just gonna make it worse Mm -hmm. yeah well and and one of my one of my very initial reactions because the plan is that they're going to basically close off you know the red carpet at four o'clock have everyone inside the theater this is what they claim they're going to do have everyone inside the theater at four meanwhile we at home that are watching are watching a recorded red carpet like a pre pre-taped red carpet so these aren't actual arrivals and they're presenting these awards inside. So first of all, I'm sorry, you're really going to tell us that the red carpet arrivals are more important than the awards themselves. The arrivals to the awards are more are more of a draw for audiences than actually watching people win them. Well, I mean, how how else would Ryan Seacrest get in his banter with Will Smith? Yeah, exactly. And so then what they're going to do is fully present those awards and let the winners speak and then they're going to edit you know that thing that's so unimportant that they can do it not on the live show edit the speeches and the presentations into the telecast so that you'll still see the winners and you'll still theoretically see their speeches and david rubin is claiming that they'll they'll their speeches will be given in whole But here's the other thing that just got announced, I think, yesterday that I was reading something where the Academy has now confirmed that they will be announcing via social media the winners in all those categories. (laughs) So as they happen, it'll be like, it's the fucking Film Twitter Awards, which I can't stand. I'm so tired of all these groups doing their nominations and their winner announcements on Twitter. Like, it's so dumb. And then you're sitting there waiting for hours for, like, this Twitter feed to unfold. And it's like, now the Academy is jumping on that. It's so stupid. It's so incredibly disrespectful to these artists. And then to task the editors... With doing this quick turnaround to put it into the show while also telling them their work isn't that important enough to be recognized. I just, I'm beside myself with how terrible this is all around. 
it's it's it really does feel like it's getting increasingly desperate mm -hmm. um because you know and the academy awards have, have suffered in terms of viewership they have you know they've tried to to rearrange the way that they were the way that things were presented like you said last year moving moving things around uh <clears throat> not having a host having multiple hosts you know all of this stuff and and none of it has worked right and you would th i would think <laughs> i would think that you have arguably all of the greatest talent of a hollywood mm -hmm. in in this one town right able to contribute their talent and somehow none of them know how to like produce a decent telecast <laughs> none of them and all and they keep on trying to do this random ass shit and you're just like none of this is things that people want and i'm sorry you're not going to attract more people to the telecast by cutting out a bunch of awards mm -hmm. it's just because a lot of the people who aren't watching the telecast aren't watching it because they're not interested Right. Right. Period. Like, so cutting out film editing or sound design or uh, um, live action short isn't going to affect their decision to watch or not to watch the, the Oscars. Right. What, what gets me is that they're trying to chase numbers that used to happen when there was nothing else to watch. This is the thing that they seem to not, I don't understand how this doesn't make sense to them, but it's like, yeah, sure. You used to get 40 million viewers when there were like 12 channels and everybody that was not ABC, because the ABC has had the Oscars since 1976. And so going through like the late seventies, the eighties, the nineties, you would get millions of viewers because even though there was cable, there, like, no, there was no counter programming to the Oscars. Every network just kind of went, well, no one else is going to watch our show. They're all watching the Oscars. So they wouldn't, they wouldn't even bother. You know, there was no, CBS didn't have some big, like, you know, premiere of something and, you know, whatever. And there were no streaming services. And so it's like, you had these huge numbers of viewers because there literally was nothing else to watch. Not just because like, oh, well, they were nominating Titanic, which was actually the highest viewed award Oscars ever. But, um, but there were a lot of other reasons why people were watching. And now the, the whole, the whole entertainment, like just everything about it has changed. People are watching all kinds of different things. And what we're also seeing is the Academy just get more and more like, I've, se I've seen a few people make these arguments that I thought were really smart. And one of the things that seems to happen is that the Academy has become embarrassed almost of being the awards. Like, it's like they just don't want to indulge in, in this anymore. They're, they're like apologizing for existing in some ways. Um, and they just won't lean into what they are and what they're best at. And that's what we're seeing as a result is this increasingly, um, uninteresting show, you know, that, and I love the Oscars. I've been watching it since I was in junior high school, but over the years I see, you know, as they try to tighten it up, as they try to, you know, do different things to make it, you know, quote unquote, more interesting they're trying too hard to please people 
instead of just being unapologetically themselves, you know? Like, you don't see the Super Bowl trying to cater to, you know, people, like, I don't know, people in wherever that don't care about sports. They just are themselves and they create an event that people who normally don't care about football want to tune into because they don't want to miss out. And that's really what the Oscars need to do is just go bigger, not smaller. Really turn it into something again where if you don't watch the Oscars, you're missing the show and you're missing what everyone's going to be talking about. Yeah, and and ultimately a lot of the most successful Oscars have been the ones where it is a show, mm-hmm. right? You know, I remember when when you know Whoopi Goldberg hosted it. Oh yeah, it was a great time. Billy Crystal, and you would have these big musical numbers at the beginning, and you would, you have jokes, actual jokes that were funny, yep. um, you know, and and repartee with the audience that wasn't like for a meme or something like that, and and those were kind of classic and they were entertaining and it was fun to watch. Right. And, you know, I still remember like Whoopi Goldberg coming out dressed as um, Judy Dench from, uh, <laughs> from Shakespeare in Love. I remember yeah. that. Right. And because it was funny, it was entertaining. It was like, mm-hmm. oh, this is a reference to a movie that I've seen, you know, that kind of thing. And then and, a couple of years later, when she came down on a swing, the year Moulin Rouge was uh, was yeah, nominated. It, mm-hmm. it was this sense. And I think that some of it, honestly, is that it came down to a sense of movies being fun. Yeah. Right. This is fun. It's funny. Look at these great films. Look at these stars. Look at these, you know, performances and actors. Everybody. That's what we're here for, right? And honestly, if you're if you aren't into that, then you're not watching the Oscars. Um, but yeah, and I, I mean, we've talked about the issue of streaming when it comes to to the Oscars. The issue of cord cutters. People like me who, uh, like, honestly, I don't know if I'm even going to be able to watch the Oscars this year. Not because I don't necess- uh, necessarily don't want to, right? But because figuring out how to watch the telecast becomes a headache. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, after a while, I'm just like, well, I could just sit on Twitter and, and you know, see the dumb shit that people say. Right. Uh, so, yeah, there there is definitely the sense of the, like you say, the Oscars need to treat this as a big production again. Yeah. And stop trying to, you know, I don't, I don't know what they're trying to do. They're trying to bring in viewers that aren't interested at, at the end of the day. Well, I think the real problem, and a lot of people have, have talked about this too, but I think the real problem is that Disney, who owns ABC now, which they didn't, you know, 50 years ago, but um, I think that they are the ones that are so concerned about the declining viewership And they're making some really terrible choices as a result. And one of the things that they could do this year to probably fix this, at least in viewing numbers, is do a simulcast on Hulu or on Disney Plus. Because there are a lot of people like you who don't have cable or YouTube TV or any other live TV option, but do have access to Hulu or Disney Plus and they would watch it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, honestly, that's how I watched the Super Bowl. I watched it on Peacock. Yeah. Um, And, and like, I got, you know, um, for a month, I have a subscription to Peacock Premium, right? But they got me. They got me to do that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I would absolutely do that. Like, if you said to me, oh, you, have, you, you can watch it on Hulu, or you can pay five bucks to stream the Academy Awards on its own independent app, fine, I will pay that. And there are a lot of people that will pay that. Yeah. 
Um, and, but the problem is, because they're not watching it on TV, there's this weird idea that people just don't care anymore. And it's like, I think just from the way that this news exploded this week, it's clear that a lot of people still do care about the Oscars. There's just fewer and fewer reasons to actually turn on the show every year. And reducing the categories from 23 to 15 and only doing the quote-unquote big ones, which, by the way, are the are you know the ones where Disney features more prominently in some cases. Um, just going to say, because of those eight, Disney does have nominees in most of those, but is not expected to win any of them. So, go figure. But, um, I well, forgot where I was going with that. But, but yeah, like, just when you do this, when you say, okay, well, we're not going to include these show these awards, you're telling other people, you're telling the viewers they don't have to care about those awards either. Even if that's not what you think your message is, that is what your message is. It's just like a few years ago when they moved the honorary Oscars and the Gene Herschel Award off of the telecast and put it on its own night for the Governor's Awards. Nobody watches the Governor's Awards. I don't think it's even televised. We hear about it the next day. We read, you know, we view clips. We pull, you know, pull audio of Angelica Houston interview or introducing Lauren Bacall, <laughs> which I did for your intro. Um, but, but that's the thing. And so it's like this year, Imagine how many people would turn it on just to watch Samuel L. Jackson accept an honorary Oscar. They've completely exactly. shot themselves in the foot by stuff like that. Exactly. Exactly. And and the whole point, ultimately, the whole point of the Oscars, when you kind of take, when you strip away some of, like, some of the corporate interests and everything, the whole point of the Oscars is to honor cinema, right? It's yeah. to honor film. And in in a lot of different ways. And so that should mean that you're honoring openly honoring right all of the things that go into film mm -hmm. um and and that's that's it's important like and and again i really do not believe that there's anyone who is not interested in watching the oscars now that will suddenly be interested in watching the oscars because you know you decide to to do a fan favorite twitter poll or whatever right. else like i don't think they're actually you know i might be wrong but i just do not think that they are going to get what they want out of this no no and one of the problems is one of the things that i'm a little worried about because hollywood loves to draw the wrong conclusions from things that's one of their favorite pastimes and so last year, the viewership had declined down to under 10 million for the first time ever. It was the lowest it's ever been. And a big part of the reason for that is not because of the the way, it's not because Best Picture wasn't last. It's not because it was in a train station instead of in the Dolby. It's because the year had been so weird. And, you know, all the big movies from the studios had been shuffled around to later dates. And so the the average Joe who's not entrenched in film, you know, the Marvel movies, there weren't any to celebrate, you know, and that kind of thing. And so it's like, you just didn't have the variety. And, and so I think this year with a little bit more of that, especially with like Dune in there and um, West Side Story, which people went and saw and really enjoyed, 
And so I think more people are going to, to turn it on again. So I think it'll tick up a little bit. I think it'll at least go up above 10 million. I don't think it's going to be less than last year. And they're going to go, well, see, we were right. We were right to do it this way. We're going to, we're going to keep not showing all these awards and it's, that's, that's not it. That is not it. Stupid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. There are a lot, I mean, obviously there are a lot of members of the Academy that are pissed and the way that they found out is pretty horrible. And like, this wasn't, this wasn't uh, a thing that the, that the governors really had any participation in. It was like a few key people at the top of, of Ampus who met with ABC and they all decided to do this and then announced it to the board of governors in a zoom call. And then that started to trickle out. And a lot of members of the Academy found out when it hit variety and IndieWire and deadline and Hollywood reporter, you know, they found out through the media and they're pissed. And there are a lot of people who are now even saying that they might quit the Academy completely over this disrespect. There's a lot of calls to boycott the Oscars this year. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the the film, uh, the, the sound, wait, the music branch. Yeah, the music branch. I guess the composers are trying to, at least this is what I've heard, um, they're trying to boycott, but they want the um, the nominees for original song to also boycott. And I'm like, that know. that would be interesting. It would be because imagine if suddenly you don't have Beyonce showing up at your big show. Yeah, which is one of the things they're banking on is people showing up, like people tuning in to watch Beyonce, and mm-hmm. um, yeah. So I don't know. We'll see what happens. There's still, there's still a month to go. The Oscars are are March twenty seventh. So, I don't know. It seems pretty clear that this is not this decision is not going to be reversed. Um, but I think that if that's the case, what needs to happen is that the membership and viewers really need to send a message: don't ever fuck with this again, because this is wrong. So. And there yeah. are a lot of ways that they can make the Oscars better and get more people. And yeah, this is not it. <laughs> so anyway, let's talk about happy things. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about happy things. Let's do. Um, so when we were talking about what to what to talk about this week, um, this episode, there was not a war in Europe. So there's that. Um, the Academy stuff Sorry, I'm was... not laughing at the word. No, I just know. like, oh, it was in the old days. It was a different time. It was a different Four time. Four days ago. <laughs> My gosh. The world is just like, oh, I, I don't... Yeah. Anyway. Um, and we kind of were talking about... I wanted to talk about international films, international features that weren't necessarily nominated for Oscars this year. Um, but that were really good that we enjoyed. And then as we were, um, going through the week and I think you had tweeted something about the topic for today. I was like, you know what? Let's just talk about movies we liked that didn't get nominated because 
There were a lot of great movies this year, and only 50-something yeah. got nominated, and we saw other ones, and we didn't do our Citizen Dame Awards, and we're not doing them. Like, this isn't, surprise, Citizen Dame Awards, it's not that. But let's just talk about some of the movies that we saw this year that we loved. First of all, you finally saw Parallel Mothers. I say finally, but it's just barely in theaters, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Well, it's finally for me because yes. this and like Nightmare Alley were the two that I was just like, I want to see the goddamn movie. Let me see it. Let me see the movie. Why won't you let me see the movie? <laughs> Very upsetting. And actually, yes. actually un- unfortunately, fortunately, whatever, I liked Parallel Mothers a lot more than Nightmare Alley. So mm, that's sad. Uh, yeah, it was a little sad, but. Yes, I did get to see Parallel Mothers, and I'm I am working on writing a, a full review of it for the website because I have a lot of things to say. Um, but kind of picking it apart was has been a little difficult because I, I think it's it was interesting because after what you said last week, I was kind of paying attention to the way that the stories intersect um, and how they intersect and how they kind of inform on each other, and that was just like something I was paying more attention to, I think, because of, of some of your critiques um than i would have otherwise and i i do disagree with you oh okay uh about about the you were kind of talking about how the the stories feel a little unfinished Mm -hmm. um and i i don't agree because i think that they they finish each other um and i i kind of uh, I, I think that that would, I think that this is, um, uh, a result of this film, I think in a lot of ways being a lot more subtle than a lot of Almodovar's films, which is amazing when you think about who Almodovar is, but there is a subtlety to the way that he interviews these stories. And, uh, I think that you can't have the story of Janice and, and Anna without this, this background of the Spanish civil war and this uncovery of the mass grave. Um, and one of the things that I think that he's doing, and you know, we can argue about whether or not he's successful at it, but I, th- I think that what he's doing is that he's creating a parallel between the repression of the events of the Spanish Civil War, the literal burying of the bodies and the unmarked graves, right? And the way that Janice and Anna's lives intersect with one another um, and the secrets that they keep from each other. And that's, and I don't want to go into spoilers for this, but that's one of the really important elements. The secret that is kept uh, turns into the, this traumatic event. And it's, and the way that trauma um, achieves catharsis and achieves eventual healing is through breaking open those secrets, literally, you know, un- unearthing the bodies, um, unearthing the lies that are being told or the lies that are being told even by omission, which is part of what is going on. Uh, and as a result that it results in healing and the formation of family and of culture. And so I think he's drawing a really distinct parallel and relationship between those two elements of the story. Um, and that's, that's why I, I don't fully agree with you in terms of the, 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 con- the two concepts feeling like they're not quite connected with each other. Hmm. So that that was my view. I think that it is. No, I, I, I sorry, I didn't mean to just like. Hmm, okay. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, like... all right then. No, I didn't think you were. Um, but yeah. I mean that that's my view. I I completely I understand why you viewed it the way that you did. I just don't think that. 
I don't agree with you. <laughs> I I just so I've actually thought about this a lot more since I watched the film and the more that I think about it the more that I I do like it. Um but I still really feel like the two films don't or the two storylines don't fully go together in a way that I don't know that I felt was satisfying. Like I, I get, I, I can understand that. I can understand yeah. not being satisfied with it. Um, I think that they do though. I, 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 I do think that they go together. I think that they have to, they have this relationship to each other. And one of the things that I really like about what he's up to is that he's, he's using, Almodovar loves women. And he loves especially talking about the relationships between mothers and children, um, especially mothers and daughters, but just generally. And he's using that interest and that kind of relationship to women specifically and expanding it outward to include all of Spain. Uh, and one of the things that I, I've noticed also in some of the, the other conversations about parallel mothers of the reviews that I've read from, at, from people who are Spanish or Spanish speakers who have, have more of a, a understanding of Spanish culture than I do is the depth of what he is using. So it isn't just like, it's, it's the images and the paintings that are in their apartments. Mm -hmm. um, it's the clothing that they wear. It's the references and the music. There's all kinds of things that he's working into it that are very specifically culturally Spanish and that are a part of what he's doing in, in building this, um, this conversation about the, the very personal and the political. Yeah. Well, and I think that a lot of those details, because I think that there are some really beautiful things about it, especially when they do finally go to her town and stuff. I, I think that those details are why I just really wish that he would just fully make a movie about um, this journey that these these family members are still on today. And and really closing those chapters for them and really finding um, finding closure for uh, for these stories and the horrors that happened during the Franco regime. I, I, I just I guess that's the problem is that for me is that I just felt like I want more of both. <laughs> and so ultimately, <laughs> I felt like it wasn't enough of either. So. I I still disagree with you, but I understand what you're saying. <laughs> you're allowed to disagree. But but yeah, so oh, wow. I I I thought it was a fantastic film. I actually want to watch it again. Um, I am definitely I am the market for Almodovar films. I love his stuff. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I, I I think it's one of those films that you, I almost I want to watch multiple times because it feels like it's like a lot of his work. It feels like it's going in one direction and then it goes in another. Mm -hmm. um and i really like what he did with that yeah yeah i um i i do think that it would be valuable for me to watch again specifically because i think i was telling you that at the screening i was at there was just this little cute old couple and he was <laughs> reading all the subtitles to her which was really sweet but also very distracting yeah <laughs> So I'll try it again when it's streaming at my house. So, all right. So, um, 
Let's see. What is another movie that you saw that was a 2021 film that did not get Academy love that you think was just amazing? So I was thinking about this. And I was just like, what are some movies that came out in 2021? And then Sir, I was like, oh, Malignant. Yes. I mean, Malignant. And this is hardly surprising. I never expect horror films really to get much recognition. Maybe like special effects, things like that. But otherwise, no. Malignant is is just for me one of the best films of 2021. It was entertaining. It like it knocked me through a loop. Uh, I I've really enjoyed showing it to other people because they're just like, okay, you can't look up anything about this movie. You just have to watch it, right? <laughs> and my my parents, God bless them, they watched it. My mom loved it, by the way. <laughs> my dad was a little more more like meh, I like some of it you know but I was like no this is awesome you don't understand <laughs> so yeah Malignant is definitely one of those and I, I honestly think it is a great horror film um it is it's so entertaining and so well made and so batshit in the best possible way <laughs> so yeah I think Malignant is definitely up there for me Malignant is great that's one that uh I I love it when people discover it even when they don't like it, I love that like discovery of what the hell is this? <laughs> it's so much fun. It's just like, what are you doing? What? 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 Mm -hmm. <laughs> that third act, man. You're just like, what? No, what? <laughs> yep. <laughs> exactly. And the thing is, re-watching it a second time, I was like, it's so obvious, and yet it's not obvious at all. <laughs> And I love that about it. I remember while I was watching it, texting you and being like, well, I was not expecting, and it won't say because I don't want to spoil it for anybody who still hasn't watched it, but, and you just were like, yep. <laughs> you kind of, you go along and you're like, okay, I kind of, like, I have some suspicions about what's up, and then you're like, no, are you? Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> like, I had some guesses, but that was not one of them. And there there are lines that watching <laughs> that film a second or a third time, there are lines that you just begin laughing at um, <laughs> because you know the twist when it's coming. And, and it's just like, like they literally, this this is what I meant uh, not that long ago talking about, you know, no subtext, all text. It's like, they literally told you what was happening. Like, <laughs> absolutely told you. And no one necessarily completely got it because it's crazy <laughs> yep it's great i love yes. it yes. um um let's see there's so many movies that i want to talk about that i'm like i don't even know what to talk about but one f well you know originally we were going to talk about international films and i think there was a whole collection of really really great ones one of which is Prayers for the Stolen. Have you had the chance I, to see that one? I haven't seen that one, yeah. Okay. So this was Mexico's submission for uh, for international feature. Uh, was not nominated. Is available on Netflix now, so add this to your list. Um, but basically, it's it's set kind of in this rural part of, of Mexico. And... Um, it's this little small town and you don't like as being from the outside, there were a lot of things where I was like, I don't really understand exactly what's happening. You know, they're, they're constantly worried about kids getting taken and I didn't really understand why, but, um, by the end, it's like, you have a much more 
um, under a much better understanding of the political uh, issues with this region. But it's this part, it's this town where they don't really have a lot. There's poppy fields. So of course, you know, they're harvesting poppies for specific reasons. Um, but uh, it's really this story about these three girls growing up in this place and the relationships between them and their parents, the relationships between them and each other, and the horrors of of being a girl and growing up in this in this place and constantly being afraid that they're going to be taken. And um, I don't, it's one that I don't want to say too much because I feel like people just need to experience the film for themselves. Um, but really just such amazing imagery. Um, and, and in just such subtle ways too, like there's an early scene where, um, you know, like all, a lot of the women in this town, their husbands, the fathers of their children have gone, you know, to other parts of the country or up to the United States to work and, and they send money back. And so there's this scene where the whole town basically is out on this hillside, <laughs> all with their cell phones trying to get a signal because there's just this like one particular place where you can kind of get a signal out to make phone calls and stuff. And, and it's just those kinds of little touches that make this such an engaging and grossing world that, um, that you just, I, it's like, I wanted to just help these people. I wanted to just reach in there. There's parts where they have to hide from soldiers. And some of the ways that they do that is really ingenious and also heartbreaking. You know, girls have to cut off their hair and look like boys and that kind of thing. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's one of those films that makes me realize how little I know about what's really happening in the world. Does that make sense? It does. Because yeah. that sounds like a fascinating film. It is. And um, Tatiana Huezo is the director. And I haven't seen any of her other works yet. And now I'm like, I really like her. I really want to see more from her. So, yeah. yeah. Interesting. That sound, no, that sounds really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, one of, the, one of the other ones that, you know, that you had actually mentioned, Karen. <laughs> And then, and then apparently didn't watch <laughs> Karen. Uh, I, um, <laughs> I, I got nothing. But I am, I am very glad that I did watch because it is a very good film, which doesn't surprise me at all, given <laughs> who made it, you know, yeah. but it, it is a great film, um, is Petite Mama, uh, by, written and directed by Celine Scalma, who also did, um, obviously Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And it's, it's. I understand why this film didn't really get much, you know, award love because it's a very small film. It's a very quiet film. It's quite short. It's like an hour and 10 minutes. Um, and it's about little girls. Like it's, it's about, and, and specifically, you know, there seems to be a theme developing the, um, the relationship between mothers and daughters. And it's so beautiful, but it's so quiet. Like, you know, if Portrait of a Lady on Fire was a fairly quiet film, this is like even more quiet. There's Ooh. not tons of dialogue. A lot of it is just people, is, is just the, the girls especially interacting with each other and kind of laughing together and learning how to relate to one another. And it's, it's this great kind of um, fairy tale almost because it, there, there's a bit of supernatural stuff going on. Uh, 
but it's it's beautifully shot it's beautifully written and it doesn't one of the things i liked about it is that it doesn't it's about exploration in a lot of ways it doesn't come to a solid conclusion um it doesn't say you know this is how we deal with uh, generational grief, right? This is how we deal with, this is how we come to understand our mothers or our daughters. Um, it's more about trying to make the effort to understand. Um, and it's, it's a really beautiful film. I don't think that it's actually available to stream quite yet. Uh, but it's, I know that it's going to be on movie. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a wonderful film. And I, I really encourage people to, to seek it out when it comes out. Awesome. Yeah, I think it comes out in April. That sounds right. Yeah, I think the I know the movie has a deal for it. Um, but I don't know when exactly. Okay. Um, I totally lost my train of thought over something I was gonna say and now it's gone. Oh my gosh. I need I need help. Um, one of the other movies that I, I mentioned I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, I think, but I wanted to talk about here now and also encourage you to watch this one. Um, but it's I'm Your Man from uh, Germany. It's um, Maria Schrader directed it and it's on I've Hulu. I've heard of this. I've heard of this. Yeah. Yeah. And so basically um, it's about this woman who is... Um, I want to say an archaeologist. I'm trying to remember if she's an archaeologist or an anthropologist, but one of those ologists. And she um, she's been working on this particular, you know, paper that she's been writing for years. This very specific project, and to kind of finish, get the final funding for um, this last thing that she really wants to do her boss kind of makes this deal with her of like, Hey, I have this other thing that I'm working on. I need your help. And if you do this experiment for three weeks, then I'll fund your trip. And the experiment is that she needs to basically live with this humanoid Android thing for three weeks and then give her an assessment of whether she feels like these beings should be granted rights as humans. And, um, the so it's Dan Stevens plays the 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 robot and um he's basically been programmed to be the perfect man for her like all the things that she's interested in understanding her needs understanding her work you know everything that like should make her like is intended to make her just like have all of her needs met and be completely satisfied right and she just from the beginning she's just like this isn't this isn't cool this is annoying <laughs> and um i don't <laughs> like this and also why do you have a british accent because he's speaking german but he's dan stevens you know and he's just like well because you are most attracted to sort of exotic people with accents and in this case it's british <laughs> you know like that kind of thing and it's just a it's it's a funny movie and it's quirky, but it's not it's not like a you know it's not like a silly comedy or anything like that. It's really smart, and it really does do a great job of. There's a lot of movies that look at you know what is humanity and ask that question, but this one, I think, in addition to that, what I really loved about it is 
how it gets into the things that, you know, we're supposed to want as, as people and how one of the things that makes relationships so much fun and so interesting is to not have someone who is your quote unquote exact perfect match to have a little bit of messiness and um, spontaneity and, and misunderstandings and, and all those things can just really, that's, that's the spark that keeps people together, not just romantically, but with friends too. And, and so I really like that it, it dives in and explores that. And, um, and she's also a woman who is just dealing with a lot of, of grief from past relationships, um, from past, you know, traumas that have happened, but in a really, in a really good and healthy way. And so I love this movie and I really think you should watch it. I think everybody should watch it. Like I said, it's on Hulu and it, it is very, um, tender in certain ways, but it's not, I, I felt like it's not sappy and I really appreciated that. Oh, sounds interesting. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I think you've mentioned this film before. Uh, and I keep remembering, like, oh, that sounds like a really interesting film. And then I completely forget about it. <laughs> but I'm glad to know that it's on Hulu now because I will yeah. actually check that out. Yeah. Um, one of the other ones that I don't think it's gotten much attention um, awards wise, although I'm honestly not 100% up on all of the different awards, uh, is just Wes Anderson's um, The French Dispatch. Mm hmm. It got which, zero nominations. Which is such a charming, you know, it's very Wes Anderson y. So if you like Wes Anderson, you like the you probably will like the film. If you don't like Wes Anderson, you probably won't. So, which is pretty true about most of his films. <laughs> um, but I just really enjoyed it. It was very charming. It was funny. Um, it had that. I I do like the edge of melancholy that are are in a lot of his films because it is basically about the the death of a magazine, um, and. And I, yeah, I just really enjoyed it. I loved the vignettes. I loved Benicio del Toro um, as, as a crazy criminal slash artist. <laughs> uh, it, it's just, I loved um, Frances McDermott. Um, she really has been doing some great work the past couple of years. Oh yeah, she's amazing. Uh, it's it's so charming and entertaining. And so it's, it, it's just a very nice, pleasant, enjoyable film. And... Those, those kinds of films tend to not get much award love, but um, uh, so it doesn't surprise me, but I, I really did like this one. And it's on HBO Max now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I really enjoyed that movie, too. I mean, I'm a big fan of Wes Anderson anyway. I, I like most of his movies. And um, so I had heard kind of mixed things about this one going in, and I really liked the fact that it was a little bit different. Obviously, it looks like a Wes Anderson movie, but, um, but I really liked the, the vignettes and the nonlinear storytelling. And, um, I thought, I thought it was, it was just fun and clever, really engaging and gave you the opportunity to get to know some different people without really feeling like you have to spend too much time with them. Cause I yeah. think certain characters would have been really annoying if I'd had to watch them for an entire movie, but yeah. watching for 20 minutes is like, great. 
Yeah, none of none of those stories felt like they needed to be longer, particularly. Right. It was just like, well, and, and it does, in that sense, it gives a very good representation of, of magazines like The New Yorker, right? Mm-hmm. Where you read these fairly involved stories and articles, but they do not need to be book length, right? This is not right. something that we need to go into any deeper. Um, and I, I like that it, it actually gave that sensation almost of reading a literary magazine like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, so the last film that I'm going to mention is not an international film. It is uh, an, a very American film, and that is Shiva Baby by Emma Ah, uh, yes, yes, I loved that movie. <laughs> yes, also on HBO Max. It's also playing on Canopy, so if you don't have HBO... Um, You can watch it on Canopy if you have access to that, too. But basically, it's about this girl. She's in college, and um, she has to go to a shiva, which is basically a wake after a funeral. And um, I think, if memory serves, she's not even sure who died. She just, like, goes because she has to, and her parents are there, and they expect her to be there. And she runs into her ex-girlfriend, and she also, oops, runs into her sugar daddy and his wife and their new baby. (laughs) Super awkward. (laughs) And that's what I love about this movie, is that it's so much awkwardness, but never in a way that made me feel like I couldn't keep watching. Like, sometimes people do awkward so wrong that it's like, I... I cannot physically handle watching this movie. But I think what was great about Shiva Baby is that Rachel Sennett, the the main star, um, she's so captivating and and just kind of like sometimes just has to lean into what's happening to her. And she does it in a way that it's like, I'm on board. I, I can handle watching this. Not that I want to watch her, you know, worst fears and inclinations play out, but um, but that I can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that that's a good description because watching that movie, I was just like, oh God, oh my God, oh, I'm so uncomfortable right now. Because, and and so much of it is also stuff that she has brought on herself. Mm-hmm. So she makes, she brought it on herself and then she makes it worse by making some very poor decisions. Yeah, and I think about. that's why watching her like embarrassment and everything play out is, be- is an awkwardness is because of the fact that it's, her own doing and you know that yeah, and it's like not that she deserves what happens but also she kind of does she, well, that, that's the thing she's likable but she also has done some not great things yes. right and and i think that because she she there's there's a degree of, of non-likability about her um i think that we're it's a little easier to accept just like well maybe you shouldn't have done that <laughs> yeah like it sucks that it's all coming together right at this moment but also <laughs> maybe you're partially at least to blame for this yeah exactly so anyway i yeah. i find it utterly like just charming in weird ways <laughs> yes, and very yes. very watchable so Yes, and that's another film that does not need to be longer than it is. It is a good length. If it yep. had gone on for too long, it, it would have just reached the point of just like I can't, I can't look at, I can't look at what's happening to this person. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, and it feels like it's. I don't think it's specifically in real time, but it feels like real time. Yeah, which I think is why is a big part of why that runtime works. You don't need a lot of extra information about the situation. You know exactly what you need to know going into it. And then just watch everything unfold. Yep, definitely. 
Any other um, films you wanted to mention? The last one I just wanted to mention again, because I, I we actually talked about this a while ago, um, back when I saw it, and I think that you've seen it now, uh, is The the Lost Leonardo. Yes. We both um, watched that at Tribeca last year. We did. Yes, that's right. Uh, and and that one, you know, again, it's, it's such a good documentary. It's absolutely the kind of thing that I enjoy. And it's so it's fascinating because you know talk about one of those films where you think you understand what this is going to be about and then it, it goes in direction just like i i don't know what's going to happen next but it's so unusual it's very to get twisty that, and turny yeah yeah and it's unusual to get that with a documentary because mm-hmm. you know it's about things that have already happened right and and in watching it i was just like this is going to places that I don't even know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen next. And I was resisting, you know, Googling it or, um, mm-hmm. or looking it up on Wikipedia. Cause I'm like, I want to know what's going to happen with this thing. <laughs> um, but it's, it really is a fantastic film. And uh, yeah, it's not getting anything particularly, again, not terribly surprising, but you can rent it um, for like 99 cents on Amazon and Apple and YouTube. Uh, and it's, it's very worth it. It is a, a really enjoyable documentary. Yeah, I have a feeling it'll be available streaming for free somewhere in the not-too-distant future, so um, that would help too. But yeah, definitely check it out, because it really is fascinating. It also proves that um, critics are kind of obnoxious no matter what what (laughs) their chosen art is. (laughs) Certain types of critics, definitely, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so there's definitely, like, some of those obnoxious talking heads in this, but also just some really fascinating, fascinating backstory. Um, I still don't know what to think about the painting itself, (laughs) you know? It's, like, it doesn't tell, it doesn't draw a conclusion for you, and... Well, and that's one of the things that's so interesting about it is that you've got this painting, right? And you get that sense of awe of, like, this could be one of you know one of the lost paintings of this great artist mm-hmm. and then it the makes sense time... that they would be out there yeah exactly and and then at the same time it so quickly stops being about the quality <laughs> of the painting itself yeah like it just it moves further and further away from that it's just like ah this is a catalyst for something <laughs> mm-hmm. yep i will say and it wouldn't have changed my opinion on the film, but I will say that I wish that this had come out around the same time as Tenet because it helped me understand a major part of Tenet better. Tenet still sucks and it's still a terrible movie, but now I'm like, oh, now I get that <laughs> because of The Lost Leonardo. <laughs> See, there you go. Yeah, that's all I'm going to say about that. I'm not going to explain why. <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah. Any final thoughts? No, it's a, as always, watch more movies. There's so many good ones out there right now. There really are. And, um, just, just, they're even the bad ones. Just watch movies. Just watch more movies and just get immersed in these worlds. Get, find, go someplace new, like Nicole Kidman tells us at every AMC theater. <laughs> I love that weird little video. It's so funny. Anyway. Um, yeah, so that is going to wrap things up for this week. We want to thank everyone so much for their for your support. Um, of course, especially our patrons who help make this show possible. And they are Adriana, Ali, Connor, Estefania, Heather, James, Kathleen, Cariata, 
Mason, Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. If you'd like to join them and become a patron yourself, you can go to patreon.com slash citizen dame. You do get access to um, early, the episodes come out early for patrons. Uh, we do have bonus episodes. Um, we are starting a couple of series that will be, you know, written word and stuff like that that'll be Patreon exclusive too. So uh, lots of fun stuff coming that way. We're also uh, assembling uh, little welcome kits that will be coming out in the next week or two uh, to our patrons as well. Um, so yeah, that is patreon.com slash citizen dame. We also have our ko-fi, ko-fi.com slash citizen dame. And of course, you can check out our Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod. I didn't end up putting anything new this week, but if you haven't been there in a while, um, there is some new stuff that's been up added in the last like two or three weeks. So definitely go check that out. And I can confirm, I can confirm that the new logo looks really good on a t-shirt. I will say that right now. Yeah. I'm so happy to know that. (laughs) I need to get myself a t-shirt. So yeah. All right. So, uh, so yeah, go get your Citizen Dame merch and, um, but you can also, uh, read our stuff and, and follow us along in other places. Of course, we have our website, citizendamepod.com, where Lauren's review of Parallel Mothers will be coming very soon. And uh, other stuff's coming there, too. And you can email us if you have questions or thoughts or want to just tell us how cool we are, citizendamepod at gmail.com. And, of course, we have our social media accounts, Twitter and Instagram. We are at citizendamepod. And Letterboxd, we are at citizendame. Lauren, where can people find you? I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at LH Business. And I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Karen M. Peterson. Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. Bye. We come to this place for magic.